Now all across North Carolina, it's Carolina Newsmakers. Here's your host, Don Curtis. Well, welcome to Carolina Newsmakers, and we have a very timely program this week. We are talking with Karen Brinson Bell, who is the Executive Director of the North Carolina State Board of Elections. And as we uh, uh, sort of kidded uh, uh, the uh, Executive Director right before the program started, she's about to really begin to earn her pay because we have a primary election coming up. Not that she has nothing to do in between, but uh, uh, this really is uh, the time to shine, I guess. And this is the earliest we have ever had a primary in North Carolina, to my knowledge. So that uh, uh, creates sort of an interesting situation for you. Uh, first of all, welcome to the program. Delighted to have you with us. Glad to be back. Thank you. I tell you, before we get to talking about the primary, let's talk a little bit about how the state is set up with a state election board. And then, of course, you have 100 county boards of election. And uh, exactly how uh, is your board appointed and uh, how are you appointed? Certainly. Um, so, you know, in keeping with your comment about earning my keep, um, we've been, <laughs> we work, um, you know, we are a full-time operation um, serving the 7.3 million registered voters in North Carolina. And the way we're structured is um, in North Carolina, we have the State Board of Elections, which is an independent agency in state government. Uh, there is a five-member board um, who are appointed by the governor through recommendations of the political parties. Uh, and then that board selects the executive director. Um, the state board members serve four-year terms. The executive director is on a two-year term appointment um, with no term limits on um, how many years the state executive director can serve. Um, I'm at um, I'm at a little over about four and a half years now. Um, I came in in June uh, of 2020, excuse me, June 2019. And um, I've been in elections since um, February 1 will be 18 years in this profession for me. Um, the state board uh, gives daily operations uh, that's charged to me. Um, and then there's a staff of, of others uh, here at the state board of elections who um, are providing services in some respects, but also support to the 100 county boards of elections. And at the county level, there's a county elections office in every county, and uh, each has a, a an appointed board as well. Um, and those are five member boards, again, through the political parties. Those recommendations come up to the state board members and they make uh, the appointments. The county board hires a uh, county elections director that is uh, is not really an appointed position. There's no term on that. They hire someone, they make the recommendation up to the state director, and then uh, the state director signs off on that decision. Well, that's a great summary of exactly how it works. You know, I've got one question now that we have so many registered unaffiliateds. How uh, are is there any consideration to having a member of the board of directors, uh, I mean, board of, of uh, elections who is re registered on affiliate? Well, I can say um, there's been, there, there's currently some lawsuits around the appointment process for the state board of elections and county boards. Um, there have also been lawsuits that have raised that very question about um, whether there should be representation of, of unaffiliated. Um, right now, 
that that's not going anywhere. But the possible makeup uh, of the state board um, has been something that uh, is in court, and uh, and we'll just have to see how all of that goes. But you're correct. North Carolina has become a um, a you know heavily unaffiliated state. Um, a lot of folks think that that makes them part of the independent party, but that's really not the case. It just means you've chosen to not affiliate with either any of the political parties. And we do have multiple political parties. Um, as When I was a county elections director in Transylvania County, we were one of the first counties in the state to actually have more unaffiliated than Republicans or Democrats. Um, which are the obvious, the two largest political parties. Um, so that was that was an interesting time, um, and it was sort of changing the dynamics of how you decide on how many ballots to even have prepared. Um, and when you go into a primary, an unaffiliated person can uh, request either party's ballot. Um, in, in this case, uh, we and or they also have the option of the Libertarian Party uh, for this coming primary. We have additional political parties, but they are actually going to do their nominations by convention for a variety of reasons. Um, but, you know, when someone does that, they're not affiliating with a political party. Even at that point, they're just choosing to participate in that party's nomination process for the general election. And so that makes us what we call a semi-closed state um, in terms of how we conduct our primaries. And of course, in the general election, there's no need for that. They can vote any way they want to. And they, uh, as I understand it, affiliate, if they choose to participate in the Republican primary this year, they can be in the Democratic primary next year or next time there is an election. It's a year-by-year -year decision. That's correct. Nothing uh, in their selection uh you know, ties them to that political party uh, as they go forward. The only exception to that is if we uh, have a second primary, which is possible. Um, and so if someone were to select, as you mentioned, the Republican primary ballot uh, on March the 5th, then they would, and then there's a um, a second primary, then they're going to continue to receive the, the Republican primary because it's a continuation of, or excuse me, the Republican ballot because it's a continuation of that primary. Um, but beyond that, there is no tie uh, to the selection that they make for the primary. Is there any difference in the participation of the, the registered Republicans, the registered Democrats, and the registered unaffiliates as far as voter participation? Um, you know, I, I don't have those numbers in front of me, but, you know, really what drives uh, participation, at least in a primary, is usually, you know, how many candidates are on the ballot. You know, we're expecting a, a really strong uh, turnout for, for this particular primary because, um, you know, for example, our governor is not up for re-election. He's term limited. So we are going to have a new governor in North Carolina. So that's going to you know, bring out um, folks wanting to participate in, in those party primaries because they're going to want to have a say in who um, is going forward onto the general election ballot. Uh, you know, presidential years also, you know, we see, you know, strong turnout whenever it's a, a presidential contest on the ballot. Um, I, in, in this case, we've got a, a number of candidates on the Republican ballot for president, but not um, the, the decision has only been to put uh, one candidate on the Democratic ballot. So, you know, we might see some shift there. But all in all, I think with so much at stake uh, in con for congressional seats in North Carolina, for the gubernatorial race and some other council of state, um, you know, we're likely just to see really strong turnout in general. 
So you've got 7.3 million registered voters in North Carolina. I think that's the number you gave me earlier. What is your prediction at this point in time as to how many people will actually vote in this year's uh, March 5th primary? You know, I think um, I, I will point out, you had mentioned earlier that this was the earliest we'd ever had a primary. It's actually the second time we've been a Super Tuesday state. And uh, we were that, we were March back in 2020. Um, and we saw strong turnout then. We had about 2.2 million folks uh, participate in that primary. And so probably we'll be uh, on par. Um, our, our overall voter registration is a little higher than we were in 2020. Um, but, you know, that's that's probably what we're looking at. And then, you know, what will be really interesting is we had our largest turnout ever in a general election uh, in in November of 2020 and about 5.5 million voters participating. So that was about a 75 percent turnout. And uh, it'll be interesting to see if uh, you know, we see that strong a push uh, this November. How does that 75 percent uh, compare with other states? Um, you know, you're, 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 I'm not the political scientist who studies all the numbers. Um, you know, if I remember correctly, you know, it was a really strong turnout for us compared to some other states. Um, I, I feel like we were in like the top third of the country in turnout back then. Uh, but don't quote me on that. So anybody listening, you know, you, you can Google me and see if I'm close to being right. And we'll, uh, maybe I can compete on Jeopardy. Well, as as you said, this is not uh, necessarily questions I should be asking you. I should be asking someone who is actually involved in the political process. But North Carolina is, of course, known as a purple state because the registration is so even between uh, Democrats and Republicans who are already registered. And, of course, everyone who is registered on affiliate has a leaning. I mean, you know, they, they're leaning one way or the other. But in most statewide elections, uh, uh, we see that... Uh, uh, the evidence that we are just a real purple state. So that, that, that probably creates more voter interest than less. I wouldn't, I'm guessing. I'm guessing too. I mean, I'm, I'm born and raised North Carolinian. So I remember, you know, when purple wasn't even a term, we've been purple before it was a term. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> you know, I, I grew up, I remember having um, Jim Hunt and Jesse Helm serving at the same time. Uh, that That's as purple as you can get. And I think, you know, N North Carolina may have grown. We may be a bigger uh, population and more registered voters. But, you know, I think the fabric of North Carolina is still pretty well the same. And that means that, you know, that, you know, it, it's not necessarily driven by political party in North Carolina. It's it's more like it's more wrapped around the ideology and um, and just, you know, wanting to see our state, you know, prosper. Well, the other thing that's changed in North Carolina, of course, uh, if you go back 25 or 30, 30 years, uh, the number of people in so-called rural counties was larger than those in the so-called uh, metropolitan counties. Uh, that's changed. And uh, I, I suspect uh, the local county boards of elections have really had to uh, learn to uh, change with that because uh, Wake County and Mecklenburg County and those counties between that and the Piedmont Crescent are, are growing. And uh, that puts a burden on those people to uh, bring their their records and their participation up to date. Yeah. 
You know, there's so much. It's not just the the changes in our demographics and our population. Um, I grew up in Duplin County, so I, I know rural North Carolina. Um, but now, you know, of course, I'm in Wake County. But what I have seen in the elections profession really transcends for all the counties. We are more technology driven. You know, we have certified voting equipment in all 100 counties. So whether rural or large, you know, we've got um, accurate and secure election, uh, election equipment, voting equipment that is tabulating our votes. And then we do a hand to eye audit to make sure that that's correct. You know, with that large of a population, we've had to move from, you know, typewriter voter registration to, you know, having computer databases so that we can, you know, transfer as people move around our state and make sure that their voter registration gets um, updated correctly in the other county. So, you know, it's really been about investment by the county commissioners in elections and the technology that we need, the security that we need, um, and, you know, all of that, um, you know, it, it, they're there's a price to it, but um, I think our democracy is worth it. Well, we've got lots of things to talk about in the other three segments of this program, including uh, the voter ID requirements, how absentee voting is going to work, the new deadlines, uh, the fact that uh, we have uh, campaign finance issues that uh, and regulations that we need to talk about. So we've got lots of things to talk to with our guest, Karen Brinson-Bell, who's the Executive Director of the North Carolina State Board of Elections. And we will begin that process right after we take time out for these messages. When it comes to making plans, you are the best. What about those round trips that you plan in advance, which are perfect on your way there and perfect on your way back? Or those meetings with friends for which you make a group chat three months before so that nobody or anything is missing? Or your daughter's first birthday party. You planned it with such dedication that instead of the first, it felt like our quince's. The same way you plan each detail for those moments. Start planning to protect you and your loved ones from a natural disaster. Sign up for local weather and emergency alerts. Prepare an emergency kit. And make a family communications plan. Protecting your family is the best plan you can make. Get started at ready.gov slash plan. Brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council. Uh-oh, Brad's buzzed. Oh, yeah? Yeah, he's starting with the woots. <laughs> <laughs> and now a speech. I just want to say that friendship is about heart. Heart and brain. Who's with me? Good thing is, he knows when he's buzzed. And my brain is saying, when it's time to go home, somebody call me a ride. Love that guy. Me too. Know your buzzed warning signs? Call for a ride when it's time to go home. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message from NHTSA and the Ad Council. We continue with Carolina Newsmakers. Here's Don Curtis. We're back on Carolina Newsmakers. Our guest this week, and it's a timely one, is the Executive Director of the North Carolina State Board of Elections, Karen Brinson Bell, and she's been in that job since June of 2019. And already, uh, of course, almost every year there's uh, all sorts of litigation about uh, districts and so forth. Uh, and uh, that uh, always uh, uh, presents interesting problems for you, I guess, in redistricting and preparing for the new maps. And of course, this year we have uh, a, a new Congress, uh, congressional district. So, we have. Yes, a, dis, a yeah. court decision back in April from the state Supreme Court meant we have new congressional districts and state house and state senate districts as yeah. well. 
Um, so what we did was we were waiting for the legislature to decide on those maps. Um, they hand them off to us and then we uh, implement them into our system so that it can assign voters to the correct district. And also as we file candidates that they know what districts uh, they would you know, possibly be able to run for. Uh, and so that's that's where we come into the picture. Uh, and, you know, we we have to turn that around pretty quickly because there's usually, you know, some back and forth and tight deadlines with the legislature and sometimes court cases. But um, this one is in court, but uh, right now it doesn't look like it's going to affect uh, this particular election. Um, it may have effect uh, in 2026, depending on what the courts decide. But right now um, we're, we're moving forward um, without any court injunctions or anything about our maps at this point. I guess the biggest change over the last uh, 25 or 30 years is uh, rolled into two different areas, and that's early voting and absentee voting. Uh, I guess maybe 30 years ago, we that those were very small parts of the election process, but they've become more and more important. So how many people will vote early percentage-wise as far as, uh, as your estimation at this time? Generally, um, for the past few election cycles, early voting is the most preferred method of voting for um, for North Carolinians, uh, and that that's across all the political parties, all your rural and urban. It doesn't matter. That seems to be the the preference, and I think it's because you know you get to go to a, a, an early voting site. And that can be any site that's established in your county. So you don't have to go to the voting site that's closest to where you live. You might be it might be easier for you to go to where uh, a site that's closer to where you work or maybe near the pharmacy if you're out and about running errands and so forth. Um, so at those early voting sites, we have all ballots available and we can provide you with the ballot that's specific to you because of you know the district lines based on you know that you might live in. Um, and it's also also a 17 day period. Now, certain counties, uh, they, they adopt their own plans and some of them come before the state board uh, if they're not unanimous in their plans, but they establish um, what, you know, if it's going to be Saturday or Sunday voting options in each county. So if someone's wanting to early vote, they're going to want to check with their county board of elections to make sure that they know the exact schedule. But, you know, but because it's going to be over a 17 day period and all counties will be open on that last Saturday before Election Day um, until 3 p.m. for those vote early voting sites, that means that people have options. And so if they're worried about, you know, some of this lovely weather we've been having, extreme cold and and so forth, or, you know, the, the, the horrible, uh, you know, storm severe weather we've been having if that's what's projected for election day then folks can go and vote early um and you know when it's sunny and 60 degrees like we might have in february in north carolina that's interesting so uh so how can people find out about the the uh, days for early voting in their county they can go to their county board of elections website and most of them will you know have lots of news coverage locally and so forth but we'll also have access to that on our state board website which is ncsbe.gov and that's also a source for information on absentee by mail and a way to request absentee by mail ballot uh, it's source of information for photo id and and some of the things i know we were wanting to be able to talk about today Another thing that's changing is a lot of people are choosing to vote uh, absentee these days compared to years past. 
uh, in the past. I guess I always assumed that absentee voting meant you were out of the country or otherwise uh, unable to get to the polls, but that's sort of changed also. Yeah. Um, at one point, North Carolina, and this is decades ago, North Carolina was what was called an excuse state, but now we're a non-excuse state, no excuse state. So you do not have to provide a reason, excuse, a reason of why you're needing to cast an absentee by mail ballot. All you have to do is be a registered voter, uh, send us a request form. Now, there is a standardized request that can be filled out and handed in at the County Board of Elections or mailed into the County Board of Elections. But the easiest way we were able to establish in 2020 is an absentee request portal. So any voter who wishes to vote absentee by mail goes online uh, through our website, ncsbe.gov, selects the absentee portal, they fill out their information, that checks them with our system to make sure that they are a registered voter in our state, and then their county board of elections can initiate that and start sending out uh, their ballot. And um, and and it's, it's really a, a really simple process. Um, and then the voter just, they have until February 27th to make that uh, request. We are encouraged folks to do that sooner rather than later because February 27th is a quick turnaround to get that ballot to them by the March 5th deadline um, because they do have to have their ballot back to us uh, by 7.30 on election day. That's a new rule, a new law that's in effect with this election. Uh, but I say all that, you know, what happens is that a voter is able to get their ballot at home or at whatever address where they're going to be. Um, and they can have, you know, they vote it in the comfort of their pajamas, the comfort of their home. Um, and all that they need are two witnesses who attest that they are the person who voted that ballot. The, the, the witnesses don't see how they voted. They're just attesting that they, they knew that to be the person who voted the ballot. They can also go to a notary and, and do the same. Um, and, you know, we've seen a real uptick in, uh, in folks wanting to vote absentee by mail. Uh, in the 2016 presidential general election, um, we saw, uh, I think it was around 200,000 people who voted by that method. In 2020, because of the pandemic, we didn't see as big an uptick at the primary because the first case of COVID was not until primary day in North Carolina. But by the general election, we had about a million ballots that were cast absentee by mail. So an extremely uh, large uptick because of the pandemic. But people got used to it. They liked it. And so once we had the 2022 midterms, we saw an increase then over what we had seen in prior midterms. So we're expecting to see more people vote absentee by mail uh, for this primary and, and you know, into the general. So you're talking about a, a million or more? I don't know that we'll see that many since we're probably looking at about 2.2 million, but we we expect that, um, you know, for the primary. But I, I think that we'll see, um, you know, a, a pretty good uptick. I think it was in the midterms that we saw about 500,000 people uh, cast their absentee by mail ballot um, as their voting method. And I think that that could easily be the number we see for this primary. Well, see, this is good news for broadcasters because back in the, the 80s, when I used to do election coverage myself, we would be on the air to 3 a.m. and 4 a.m. in the morning and still, in many cases, still not have uh, all the the uh, precincts reporting even then. And so uh, this early voting and the uh, machine counts and so forth make it so much easier for broadcasters. I mean, generally speaking, uh, 
uh, it's you can kind of see how things are going within a couple of hours. That's right. We don't release the those results until the polls have closed on election day. But it, you know, when you've got sixty to sixty five percent of the votes having been cast during early voting, and then another large percentage absentee by mail, you know, you're right. Um, it's it. You, you often can know the winner just through those, but we don't do that. We don't release those results until we've got those election day results um, coming in, or at least the polls have closed because we don't want to influence how someone does or doesn't vote or even participates on election day if they already know the outcome. But those close contests, now that that's what matters. And that's when it really, um, you know, the, the boards of elections roll up their sleeves and really get down to the nitty gritty work of um, considering absent, uh, considering provisional ballots, um, folks who might not have been in the book, but or might have might have been a, an issue. Um, we research to see if they are eligible to have their ballot counted. Um, and we also it's still while the law has changed that you must have your absentee by mail ballot in by 730 p.m. on Election Day, there's no grace period any longer. There still is on the books, it has been law for a long time, that our military and overseas citizens have until the day before um, the Canvas meeting. So uh, the Canvas meeting is our when we certify. That's 10 days after the election. And so by nine days um, from the election, they have to have their ballot to us, uh, that, that being the military and overseas citizens. So bring us up to date on the re voter ID requirements and uh, what are the resources for those who need an ID? We have a lot of resources. I want to make sure that people know what their options are. So thank you for asking me this. So uh, we did implement photo ID uh, in North Carolina as part of the municipal elections. But of course, there's only a small portion of our population who live within municipalities and can participate in those elections. So this will be the largest rollout um, affecting North Carolinians. And you know, we will be asking people who uh, vote in person to show their ID when they present themselves to vote. And someone who's voting absentee by mail is supposed to include a photocopy of their ID when they return their ballot to us. In both cases, if they do not have a way to, if they do not have an acceptable form of ID, then they can complete an exception form and explain why they do not. It might be a religious objection. It might be that they had a reasonable impediment, such as inability to, to get transportation to somewhere to get a proper ID. Um, or uh, it could be natural disaster. Now, there's a, a caveat to that. Obviously, there had to have been a natural disaster and you had to have been subjected to it. And we don't have one of those right now, but you never know in North Carolina weather. Um, but nonetheless, so they have that exception form. And also, if they do have an acceptable form of ID, but they forget it, um, they can have when they present themselves in person, then they can vote a provisional ballot and then bring that ID to the county board of elections and you know, and show it so that that can be counted as well. Um, and then, you know, I think what we really want to emphasize too is that there are many types of IDs that folks can can use. Most are going to use their driver's license, but they can be a passport. There's tribal IDs that are accepted. There are uh, community college and university IDs that have been approved. So to see that whole list, if they're not sure whether they have an acceptable form of ID, then go to our state board website, ncsbe.gov. And if they do forward slash voter ID, they'll get specific information on voter ID. And then last but not least, if they would like a free form of voter ID, they can get that through their DMV 
or they can go to their county board of elections and we will make them um, a voter ID uh, that they can use for voting purposes. Wow, that's a lot of uh, information there. So really, uh, a person that needs a voter ID has lots of options. That is right. We have positioned it to where there are a lot of options for them. And what I would just emphasize is that you know those options mean don't let this impede you from voting. If you want to participate and you're concerned about ID, come and vote and we will work with you to make sure that your vote counts. And, uh, th and that would be those provisional ballots. Many, provisional ballot or no, the exception form, no, no. you know, depends on their circumstance. How many did we have last time of the uh, provisional ballots? Oh, I don't remember that off the top of my head. Since, <laughs> my job is to ask you questions that you probably just don't have on the top of your head. And uh, uh, that makes life interesting for you. And I want to keep life interesting in the next segment <laughs> of Carolina Newsmakers also. And we're going to talk about compliance and campaign finance and your role in that particular uh, aspect of your job as the executive director of the North Carolina State Board of Elections, uh, Catherine Benson Bell. And we'll do that right after these messages. Steven. Who said that? Me, down here. <gasps> what are you, a yellow booger? I'm a banana slug, Steven. Well, uh, what are you doing in my room? I'm your sense of adventure. Don't you remember me? Don't you know that we miss you? Miss me? Who misses me? You know, all your friends in the forest. The trees, the pond, that little fort that you made out of branches. We all miss you. Mom took me to the forest last year. I'm a slug, Steven. It took me a long time to get here. Oh, I guess that makes sense. This forest is not that far away. Have an adventure today. I'm sure your mom would take you. You're right. I should get out. I want to have fun. Play in puddles, catch frogs, and climb trees. Hey, Mom! Yeah, hon? <gasps> Stephen! What is that in your hand? It's my sense of adventure, Mom. It's telling me we need to get out of the house and have some fun in nature today. Come to the forest where the more adventurous you lives. Check out discovertheforest.org for cool places nearby. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. Here's a fun fact for you. The average chameleon can point their eyes in two different directions. On the other hand, the average human can't. So unless you're a chameleon, there's absolutely no way you can focus on texting and driving at the same time. So don't do it. Unless you're a chameleon. Visit StopTextsStopRex.org. A message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellowlight, and the Ad Council. Now, once again, with today's Carolina Newsmakers, here's Don Curtis. As we ended the last segment, I referred to our guest as Catherine Brinson Bell. Obviously, it's Karen Brinson Bell. I have done that twice in my uh, uh, talks with uh, the executive director. I don't know why I want to rename you, but, uh, but uh, Catherine's a nice name. I mean, maybe you. It's a maybe... wonderful name. And Karen's been made fun of. Um, including by my brother. So, you know, maybe it's a good thing you're changing my name. I don't know. Well, I try not to be one of those Karens. Okay. <laughs> uh, anyway, Karen Brinson Bell is our guest, and she is the executive director of the North Carolina State Board of Election. And we've talked about absentee voting. We've talked about early voting. Uh, we now want to turn to campaign compliance and campaign finance. And that's uh, it's, uh, actually very different from running elections. So tell us what uh, the State Board of Election does in that regard and how uh, you handle that uh, part of your duties. 
it it is under the umbrella of what we do for sure. Um, in some states, it's not, and so that's an interesting distinction. Just like um, in many states, the elections are run by the Secretary of State, but that's not the case in North Carolina. We're an independent agency, and the county boards are are independent as well. And so. Um, Within our charge is to uh, administer campaign finance, uh, which is to accept the reports from the campaign committees, the political action committees, the independent expenditure committees. The list is long. Um, those who are engaged in uh, expending money towards campaign efforts or receiving money, um, receiving donations and such. Um, and so there is a series of reports. There's a cycle when they're supposed to report all of this information. There's criteria within our law that sets limits. Um, you know how much cash can be received uh, without it. You know, or how it, before it has to be written in the form of a check. There's limits on how much someone can even contribute to a campaign individually, um, and and all of that is what we are. We're receiving those reports so that the public can view them, can see them, uh, can scrutinize them. Uh, we also are auditing to make sure that they're in compliance. Um, and we do that at the state and county level. And it really, you know, it, it's it's not far-fetched that we handle this when you consider that, you know, when someone comes to file for office, uh, they, they're able to do so because they're a registered voter, they live within that district or whatever the, the qualifications might be. But at that time, they're going to also have to declare this campaign committee um, because it's required that they report you know, their expenditures and their donations. And even that filing fee is part of that. So, you know, our whole process of filing a candidate, whether it's at the state level or the county level, is to to take them through that process. And that includes helping them get established for their campaign finance reporting. So now uh, let's get back to an individual race. What are the limits as far as what an individual can do as far as making contributions to a particular candidate? This actually, um, it changed in North Carolina because we are actually on a scale now. Um, but, you know, they can't give uh, more than $50 in cash. Uh, so no under the table, no passing the hat, you know, things like that have changed over the years as well. Um, so you know, we do have limitations and we can't bundle. It also has to be uh, individual contributions, not business contributions. That um, that's when it gets over into um, the, something that's different. And we also, you know, we always try to train our treasurers and our candidates on the fact that um, which treasurer training is a requirement. Um, you know, the differences between uh, state level uh, campaign committees and then there's federal and and that's very different we don't handle the congressional committees we don't handle the presidential committees um unless there's something that's been established as like a political action committee or something that's at the state level i didn't know that so you don't do the congressional or the federal elections as far as the campaign contributions that's right the the federal election commission handles that i see i that's that's news to me and i'm glad that you made that clear because uh, I would imagine a number of people probably felt that uh, that fell under your your responsibilities. So, um, okay, you said it was tiered. Tell me about how it's tiered. Um, well, it's it's tiered based upon. Um, I'm, and you're you're putting me on the spot here, Don. I'm trying to draw trying to remember the term, and I'm drawing a blank at the moment. Um, but um, it. it 
it based it's based upon uh the change in the inflation if i'm inflation's not the right word um let let come back ask me another question and we'll come back to that how's that i think you're talking about cost of living index i think you're right thank you very okay. much <laughs> You know, it's interesting how when you are doing a program like this, you can have a complete something can just slip your mind, and it's so easy, and uh, uh, it happens all the time. And so, don't worry about it at all. Well, thank you. <laughs> I appreciate it. So, getting back to the question, uh, how, how how is it tiered? Um, I'm trying to pull that up right now because I don't want to tell you wrong. But, but it's basically it's been adjusted because of the cost of living inflation. That's right. Okay, That's right. so it's it's not yeah. a it's not a uh, big, it's not race by race or or, or candidate by candidate. That's right. Um, okay. The only thing that, you know, there is a threshold where someone who they can declare that they don't, they won't be submitting reports if they don't plan to spend or receive more than a thousand dollars. So oftentimes at our most local level, you actually won't find uh, a report um, because, you know, or often, for example, a county commissioner, their filing fee will not reach a thousand dollars. So, uh, and if they just, you know, if they're an incumbent or 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 unopposed, you know, they may not have to spend um, like some contests, like for share, for example. And certainly, uh, when we get into you know our council of state races, our governor's races, the you know, there's tremendous amounts of money that are being raised and and expended uh, in those contests. So what happens when you see violations of the campaign finance law? How how is that handled? So you know, what we're looking at is is trying to, to encourage compliance. Um, we do our treasurer training and and have materials uh, to those committees so that they are you know are following the law. Um, our goal is not really to do a gotcha. <laughs> I mean, we will if we have to, but the goal is to try to have everybody in compliance because then that's transparency and that allows the public to hold the the candidates um, accountable and help in their decision making. Um, but so, you know, if they're not in compliance, if they're late with a report or if they're, um, you know, they, they indicate expenditures that, you know, I, I use the example of pass the hat, you know, that means that you know, there's there's actually a in, in old times that meant that there was a fundraiser and there was a hat passed and people put in a couple of dollars or whatever they had. We have to attribute those contributions to someone. So even if you give a dollar, it's supposed to be um, maintained by that campaign committee. And so, you know, if we see something, then we you know, we're going to try to first work with that committee to get them back into compliance. And then if not, then there's an enforcement aspect of our agency uh, to where, you know, there it could come before the state board. We can grant a waiver or or we can can have a penalty uh, that's put into place. Uh, but ultimately, you know, it, it can go further than that. And North Carolina has had its fair share of uh, of, you know, major campaign finance uh, situations that, um, you know, at times have even led to someone um, being removed from office or going to jail. Um, and But hopefully we don't get there. The goal is to try to have compliance so that we have transparency. And transparency is the key to everything you've said there, because uh, uh, that's that's what the voter really wants to know is what's really going on. I mean, that's, that's right. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and, and they have every right to to expect that. That's right. I mean, when part of the, the the reports, for example, is if if someone gives, you know, we'll just say a hundred dollars, 
we don't get to just list their name. You're you're listing other information about them, like their profession. So if you know, it may be of importance to someone to know that you know all the dentists have gotten behind a certain candidate, um, and and you know, and they can see that through campaign contributions. And that might be a, a good thing to a voter, or it might be a bad thing to a voter. I don't know. Nothing against dentists, but just as an example um, of of something, you know, there there may be reasons why people want to know. Um, who, you know, they're, who, who's supporting uh, a candidate. And so that's what this disclosure is about. Um, additionally, you know, it's important to know, for people to know how the candidate's spending their money. So, you know, for some people, if they donate, they want to know that it's being spent well. Um, and uh, yep, so that we know that that's why some people, and, and if they file at the state level, we do post those online. The counties, um, you know, they may have different means or different um, uh, hurdles in getting those posted because they it's a little more cumbersome, but um, but they are available for public viewing in the County Board of Elections office if somebody wants to go and see a report. Now, the County Board of Elections really doesn't go into compliance. Is that correct? They actually, we do audit. I mean, when I was a County Elections Director, I received uh, campaign finance reports from commissioners, from the sheriff's uh, candidates and so forth. And I was responsible for auditing those to see if they were in compliance. But if I did find something of issue, uh, then I worked with the State Board of Elections because we um, you know, it we actually have a staff. It's not a large staff, but we have a staff that's uh, more trained in that where a county elections person is obviously wearing a lot of other hats. Um, our campaign finance staff is dedicated to that. Now, as I understand, uh, uh, on uh, federal elections, is this also true for uh, state elections, I guess is the question I'm going to ask. Uh, there's a, a period where you can contribute in the primary, and then your uh, clock or your uh, meter starts over for the general election. Is that true in state elections as well as federal elections? Yes, there are. There's contributions that can be made in the primary. There's contributions that can be made in the general election. And then there's a, the, you know, we're looking at reports that give us the total picture as well. Um, and then, you know, not to get into the weeds too much, but, you know, there if there is a second primary, then there's requirements of that. Because remember, that's the continuation of a, of a primary. So, um, you know, we, we're watching all of that. Um, and, and the committees have to be in compliance with that, too. Social media is uh, an interesting phenomenon that's come along and I guess mainly in the last maybe dozen years, but more importantly, the last five or six years. Has that changed the way you operate your office and look at compliance issues? Um, you know, I don't know that it's affected us that much with campaign finance so much um, as, you know, just overall how we are trying to communicate with with voters. Um, you know, social media is an interesting aspect because if someone's paying for in terms of campaign finance, you know, if it's an advertising mechanism for them, you know, they actually pay for ads, then that's going to be reported. If they're just, you know, on a free service, you know, saying that you know, their platform on sidewalks or something uh, that that's not you know that's that's freedom of speech it's not um that's not a campaign finance issue at that point so that's the only area where we would get into you know campaign finance and social media but 
you know, our, the other side of things is just using social media as a tool for our agency to, to try to inform people. Um, we've we've definitely used that for uh, photo ID because as we rolled that out in the municipal elections, uh, we did not have an advertising budget that's been approved in the budget that was passed in October, and that'll be part of our 2024 efforts. Um, but you know, we we rely on social media um, to to help people understand what deadlines there are, what you know, what what terms even mean? You know, we've talked even on this show about um, ballot styles and and what does that term mean? And that's going to be the particular ballot that is issued to a voter based upon the districts that they reside in, um, the jurisdictions. So, you know, it's just trying to make sure that the voters are as aware as possible of, you know, how elections are conducted and, and the efforts we go to to make them um, fair and accurate and secure uh, for all voters. NCSBE.org is the website. Dot gov. Dot gov. I don't know where dot org takes you. So dot gov. NCSBE.gov. Oh, I'm glad you corrected me on that because I would have assumed it was dot org. Okay. I learned all sorts of things in this program. I hope the listeners do as well. Our guest is Karen Brinson Bell, Executive Director of the North Carolina State Board of Elections. And we have more sessions coming up and we'll talk about. uh, some other aspects of the job that she and her staff are are obligated to do for the state of North Carolina. And we'll do that right after these messages. What is dedication? The thing that drives me every day as a dad is Dariana. We call him uh, Day Day for short. Every day he's hungry for something, whether it's attention, affection, knowledge. And there's this huge responsibility in making sure that when he's no longer under my wing, that he's a good person. I think the advice I would give is you don't need to know all the answers. The craziest thing was believing that your dad knew everything. So as a dad, you felt like you had to know everything. You had to get everything right. It's okay to make mistakes. As long as it's coming from love, then, you know, it kind of starts to work itself out. I want him to be able to sit back one day and go, we worked together, we did a good job. That's dedication. Find out more at fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. The possibility of lung cancer can be pretty scary, especially if you're one of approximately 8 million current or former smokers at high risk. That's why SaveByTheScan.org wants you to know that now there's a breakthrough low-dose CT scan that can detect lung cancer early, and it only takes 60 seconds. You stop smoking, now start screening. For an easy quiz to see if you're eligible, visit SaveByTheScan.org. It could save your life. SaveByTheScan.org is brought to you by the American Lung Association's Lung Force Initiative and the Ad Council. Carolina Newsmakers continues, and once again, here's Don Curtis. We're back on Carolina Newsmakers. This is our final segment with Karen Brinson Bell, who I've from time to time wanted to refer to as Catherine, but that's okay. Uh, she has admitted that she wouldn't mind being Catherine, so that's that's okay. She's the executive director of the North Carolina State Board of Elections, and we've talked about all sorts of things ranging from voter ID to early voting and absentee voting. So if you haven't uh kept up with all the changes, you can uh, go back and listen to a repeat of this broadcast or go online to their website. We'll talk about that again later. After the last election, there's been more and more concern about election security, probably not quite as much uh, questions in North Carolina as in a lot of the states. But um, 
let's talk about election security and and how you uh, handle that and, uh, and how your your uh, board state board and the 100 local boards work to be sure that our elections are fair, honest, and complete. There is so much I could say about this. I'll try not to take up the whole segment. Take, take as much time as you want because I think everyone is interested. Well, you know, I'll first highlight that you know, there have been there have always been efforts to make our elections safe and secure. Um, you know, when I started in elections in 2006, that was the first time that we had certified voting equipment in North Carolina um, that with with state oversight before then some counties didn't even have voting equipment um, and we put things in place that have held uh, we have had a an audit of our voting equipment following every election where we we randomly select uh, two voting sites and uh, for each county and they have to to do a hand to eye count. They don't know going into that selection process the day after the election what sites are going to be picked. Um, you know, so th that's been in place since 2006. We were at the forefront uh, in North Carolina, forefront of the nation by doing that. We've had what we call logic and accuracy testing uh, in place. It's standards that we expect all 100 counties to do to verify that those voting pieces of voting equipment and all the accessories to that are working as intended and are counting the votes accurately. Um, that's a public event if anybody wants to see it. Um, it's a lot of, of input into the system to make sure that it's working properly. We we actually feed test ballots into the tabulators to uh, and, and check it against a test script. Um, so you know, all of those things are in play. But then there's some things that are just, you know, I guess more subtle. But if you really stop and think about it, we have bipartisan election officials working at all of our voting sites, and those are people from the community. Their names have been put forward by the political parties. Um, they've been selected by the county board of elections, which are bipartisan as well. And you know, these folks go through training. They work together as a team. There's no one person who gets to make all the decisions. Uh, you know, and and. They are the people that you know, that they may have been in the church choir, or might have been a former teacher or basketball coach, something of that nature. Um, and, you know, and so that adds to the security of our system. But, you know, there's been even more that's happened. Those are, are longstanding traditions but um, and measures that we've taken. But in 2017, elections was designated as critical infrastructure for our country. And so what that means is we've also heightened our, our efforts. And so there's a lot of emphasis on cybersecurity to make sure that our databases cannot be hacked, to prevent our county boards from you know, being subjected to phishing attempts through email, um, to make sure that our website is, is protected and is not going to be hacked to where anyone questions the results um, that are displayed there. Uh, so much that goes into it uh, to make sure. You know, we've also been doing physical security measures to make sure that you know, we limit access to our voting equipment, that we limit access into our buildings um, because we have, you know, election officials have been subjected to threats. And so we are still open to the public, but there might be, you know, a barrier separating or you might not be able to have full range when you come into the office. Um, but that's that's a protective measures, too, because we also are going to protect that 
um, personable identifying information, PII is what we call it. So, you know, someone can't have access to your date of birth or someone can't have access um, to your social security number that would be on file with our voter registration records. And um, so all of that goes into securing our elections. And even when we were referencing the website address, ncsbe.gov, .gov is really important. And we had to, to meet certain criteria. We had to go through certain authorizations to even have that designation. And it gives us added layers of security. And it's a it's conveying to the public that that's a trusted source. We are an identified government entity. You can't just go and buy a .gov address. You have to be an established government entity. And so that's different than .org or .com or .net. Um, those serve different purposes. And so, you know, we've really worked to try to uh, educate the public. Uh, we have a, a page on our website dedicated to security. So everybody knows all these things that I'm going over. Um, and, you know, there's just so much. We we have Secure Saturday as a posting on social media so we can try to educate people about all the measures we do take to make sure that, you know, their information is secure, that their vote is secure, and that there's accuracy in how we count those votes in our elections. If you're new to North Carolina or if you have never voted in an election, uh, how do you register? What, what information to, to register to vote? And for uh, those who maybe moved in from out of state. Yep. We, most of our voters register when they go to the Department of Motor Vehicles to get a driver's license, especially, you know, whether they're moving out of moving here from another state or whether they're switching counties or just updating their information. Anytime you interact with the DMV, they're going to ask you if you want to register to vote or update your information. Uh, so that partnership has been, you know, something that's been really nationwide um, after what they call the Motor Voter Act. But um, it, it's definitely been, you know, a great partnership in North Carolina. We've, we have other options. You can always fill out a paper form uh, at the County Board of Elections uh, and, and that will be processed. Uh, you can print one off of the state website or a County Board of website. So ncsbe.gov um, and you can get the voter registration form from there. Uh, they're available in, in other government agencies like a library um, if that's how you choose. But one of the services that we were able to launch in 2020 is also the ability to register online if you're an existing DMV customer. Um, you, you don't have to be going on the site to do something with the DMV. You can simply use your signature that's on file with DMV to apply that to the voter registration form and you can register online that way. Um, someone who's not, who does not have a driver's license or a DMV issued ID is not going to be able to use that service. But, uh, but anyone who does have an existing record with DMV can update their voter registration just by going to our website, ncsbe.gov. I'm going to change the subject now and talk about the 100 counties that are faced with having these elections. The primary, of course, is March the 5th, as we've mentioned before. Do we have enough precinct officials and election workers now? Because so many of these people have to be volunteers. They are. I mean, our, our, our election workers are 
paid to be at our early voting sites or on the election day voting sites, but it's a small amount. Um, and so at the end of the day, it's more volunteer when you get down to it. And they work long days. Um, if they're early voting worker, that's a 17 day period. If it's election day, we show up generally at 530 or 6 a.m. because the polls are going to open at at 6.30 a.m. and be open until 7.30 p.m., but then we've got to shut down those polling places and get the materials back to the county boards of elections. So, you know, it, it's it's a long day. Um, and you, but, but we consider those folks to be our democracy heroes. That's, that's what we called it in 2020 because there was such a shortage there. You know, most of our, our voting workers, our election workers are uh, in 65 or older. And so in the pandemic, that meant they were part of the vulnerable population. And so some of them couldn't serve, even though they had been long serving uh, election workers. And uh, so their their niece or their nephew, grandson, um, neighbor down the street stepped up. And uh, we had such a response to our Democracy Heroes campaign where we asked people to step up. And they found a lot of those folks found that they really enjoyed it. And then the folks who were in the vulnerable population were able to return. And now we've got this great pool of people who are serving their community and serving their neighbors um, at the voting sites. But there's still times when we don't have an adequate number of folks. So we would still encourage you reach out to your county boards of elections. There are ways that you can help um, and, and be a part of, of this process. Um, and, and it's just it's such meaningful work. Um, I will also point out what might not be as obvious to folks is the amount of turnover that we've actually had in the profession. Uh, in North Carolina, I became uh, state director, as we've talked about, in June 2019. I noticed some some turnover even in that year. And so I started tracking it and I went back to June, uh, January 2019. So I'd have a complete year, even though I didn't start until June. But from January 2019 until today, we have had 54 changes in county election directors in our counties. Now, that doesn't mean all you know, 54 separate counties. In some cases, we've had the director change more than once in the four year, four and a half year period. And so, you know, it's it's really tough. Some of these folks um, worked for 20, 25, 30 years in their position. And so they're, you know, they have all right to retire. Um, but sometimes they're saying that they just didn't quite have the fuel and fuel tank anymore because our profession has come under attack and uh, and that's that's really tough to see. And uh, but it's exciting to see some of the folks who are coming into the profession who are as committed as those folks who work 25, 30 years uh, in the field. But uh, it also puts a lot of of, um, you know, added responsibility to the State Board of Elections to make sure that we adequately train and support these county offices as they go through these transitions. Well, it's uh, it's certainly uh, a, a good thing because this is a at best is a part time job. I mean, elections only happen uh, infrequently, and so working at the polls is definitely a part time job. Working at the polls is working in the county office or the state board. We have been preparing for this presidential year since 2020. Yeah. Uh, there is constant maintenance of our voter rolls, of the website information, preparing those training materials. Um, it, it there's there is constant work. Um, those campaign finance reports that we talked about earlier, they're happening year round. And so there's 
there's always something going on in the county boards of elections. And hopefully doing, you know, having these conversations with you and doing other efforts is helping folks to understand what all goes into making sure we have safe and secure elections in North Carolina. Well, you have certainly uh, been uh, very uh, uh, informative in this program. And I think everyone who has missed part of the broadcast will know that they can go online and hear what you had to say about voter ID, early voting, uh, the redistricting, the absentee ballots, uh, absentee voting, and so forth. We covered it all. So if you uh, uh, joined us late in the broadcast, you can listen to the complete broadcast by going to carolinanewsmakers.com, carolinanewsmakers.com, and hear the remarks of Karen Brinson-Bell, the Executive Director of the North Carolina State Board of Elections. Thank you so much for being with us, and we'll look forward to having you on again. Glad to do it. Thank you. Our program has been produced by Jason Kong, and he promises me faithfully that you will have another interesting guest again next week on this same group of stations. So the next week, same time, same station. Have a good week, everybody. Carolina Newsmakers is a production of NCN and is heard each week on a network of North Carolina's leading radio stations. To hear a repeat of this broadcast, go to carolinanewsmakers.com. Carolina Newsmakers is produced by Jason Kong. Network engineer is Alan Sherrill. I'm Scott Fitzgerald inviting you to join us again next week, same time, for Carolina Newsmakers. Newsmakers.